Good morning, ladies. I am excited to be with you today and get to talk about this wonderful chapter of John's Gospel. Um, I was so thankful that both of my friends knew that song because I asked for that since it ties into our passage today and some of the references in the Old Testament also um, to the Lord. So often in the Gospels, we read a lot about people rejecting Jesus. And one of the things that I loved about John 4 is how we can rejoice as we studied these stories of how Jesus, the Messiah and Savior of the world, brings many people to saving faith in him. Because, like chapter 1 said, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe on his name. So just like the people in John 4 that we will talk about today, we each must believe in Jesus Christ to gain true satisfaction and eternal life, and then bring others to that Savior. Then one day, all of us who have believed in his name will join the believers of this chapter in heaven as we worship our great Savior forever and enjoy eternal life together. So if you haven't already, please turn with me to chapter 4 in John, and let's pray for God's help as we study his word together this morning. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you sent your Son to be the Savior of the world. We are thankful for all that you've revealed about yourself in Scripture, and we are thankful for this chapter where we get to see your work in the hearts and lives of these people. Please work in our hearts today. Teach us by your word. Convict us by your Holy Spirit, and help us to grow to be more like your Son. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, ladies, as you know, we're in John 4 this morning, and just like the outline on your notes says, our first point is going to be about living water and true worship. But before we get into that, I want to set the scene a little bit. We have a wide variety of ladies from lots of backgrounds, and so you may or may not already be familiar with some of the things that John's readers would have known. When we left off at the end of chapter 3 last week, John the Baptist was telling his disciples that Jesus must increase and he must decrease, and a couple of things happened in between the end of chapter 3 and the events in chapter 4. One of those things is that John the Baptist was actually imprisoned by Herod Antipas. So he was arrested by this wicked ruler in Galilee who was not happy about John rebuking him for his sin. And then the first verses of John chapter 4 tell us that Jesus knew that the Pharisees had heard that he was making and baptizing more disciples than John. So that's part of the reason given for Jesus leaving Judea and going away into Galilee. Jesus was always on his father's timeline, and there were political and religious tensions rising, and it was only the first year of Jesus' ministry here. So it wasn't the right time for those conflicts to erupt in Judea just yet. Well, Jesus had been in Jerusalem, and if you're familiar with um, kind of the map of Israel, uh, Jerusalem's just slightly south, and then he moved into the Judean countryside, and now here in chapter 4, he and his disciples are going to head north into Galilee. Well, the fastest path, the most direct route, sometimes it's called the Way of the Patriarchs. It ran right through Samaria. And it um, was several days shorter in journey time than either of the alternatives that went east and west. 
Um, but as you may know, there was a long-standing animosity between the Samaritans and the Jews. So many Jews would dis- consider it defiling to even set foot in Samaria, and they were willing to add multiple days of walking in order to avoid going through the territory of these people that they despised. In Jesus' day, this hostility already went back to 700 years earlier. Um, God's judgment fell on the northern kingdom of Israel. They were conquered by the Assyrians, and most of them were taken out. There were a few left behind. And Assyria brought in other conquered pagan peoples and resettled them in Samaria, kind of mixed in with the Jews. Those two groups of people intermarried mixed to some degree their religion. So they had the worship of Yahweh, but then they had the worship of these other pagan gods. And so the Jews of the southern kingdom, who hadn't yet at that point been uh, defeated by Babylon, they despised the Samaritans for this. And Second Kings chapter 17, verse 33 says, those people were fearing Yahweh and serving their own gods, according to the customs of the nations among whom they'd been taken away into exile. Then Judah does get taken away, the southern kingdom, and they come back and they're trying to rebuild their temple, and the Samaritans and Jews are clashing again. You can read in Ezra and Nehemiah how these two groups of people were not getting along. The Samaritans ended up building their own temple on Mount Gerizim, and they also rejected all of the Old Testament scripture except for those first five books of Moses, the Pentateuch that we studied last year. So they rewrote even parts of that to kind of fit their historical story and their own purposes. And then, as if all of those tensions weren't enough, about 150 years before Jesus, there were some events that happened between the Old and New Testaments, and there was a Jewish high priest and leader, and he came and he destroyed the Samaritan temple on Gerizim. He destroyed the city of Shechem and some other things. And so we can see why there was no affection between these two groups of people. Well, with all this history, and at a time when the pious Jews would go the long way around to avoid the Samaritans, Jesus does a lot of things here in John 4 that would have been staggering to both people groups. So let's pick up reading in John chapter 4. Go down to verse 4. John very specifically says in verse 4, and he had to pass through Samaria. So we've already established there's other ways to get to Galilee from Judea. So Jesus and his disciples did not geographically have to pass through Samaria. So John seems to be telling us that Jesus needed to go there in order to keep a divine appointment. In John 6, 38, Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Everything that Jesus does is out of a desire to do what God the Father has sent him to do. And so Jesus and his disciples headed north on the same route that we read about Abraham, Jacob, and Joseph traveling on 2,000 years earlier. They came near two mountains that you might remember from Deuteronomy, or if you studied Joshua last summer, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, where the blessings and the curses of the law were read aloud by the 12 tribes of Israel after they entered the Promised Land. Well, on the slope of Mount Ebal, between the mountains, was this Samaritan city of Sychar, John gives us some backstory in verse 5, explaining that it was near land that Jacob gave to Joseph and that Jesus sat down by Jacob's well. As you can probably tell, there was a ton of Old Testament history in this area. The well was by a city called Shechem, the same city where Abraham first came to the promised land 
and built an altar, and Yahweh spoke to him, promising this land to his descendants. It's also the same city that Jacob first came to when he's returning to the land. He's been in this exile, escaping from his brother Esau, and now God's fulfilled his promises to bring him back safely to the land. He's coming back, and he's coming back with 11 of the 12 sons that will be the forefathers of the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, The Old Testament doesn't tell us about Jacob digging this particular well, but it actually does tell us about him acquiring this land in Genesis 33. It's an exciting part of this story because you see these fulfilled promises from the Lord. Genesis 33 verses 19 and 20 tell us that he bought a portion of the field where he'd slept when he first came back, and he built an altar to the God of Israel. Remember, Jacob's name had been changed to Israel, so he's building an altar to his own God. Well, access to water, of course, could be a major source of contention, and so it makes sense that he secured a water source for his large family and all those flocks and herds after he bought the land. Jacob then bequeathed this land to his beloved son Joseph after they reunited in Egypt. Both of these men knew and believed God's promises that this land would belong to their descendants. And when Joseph was about to to die, he made the people of Israel promise to take his bones back, and they did. Joshua 24, 32 tells us, now they buried the bones of Joseph. Remember, this is hundreds of years after Joseph's death. They buried the bones of Joseph, which the sons of Israel brought up from Egypt at Shechem in the portion of the field, which Jacob had bought from the sons of Hamor. This is basically right around the corner from Jacob's well, where Jesus is sitting and having this conversation. So Jesus and his disciples arrive in this area where there are so many important events from their people's history. And we've got those two cities. So Shechem has already been destroyed. It's kind of ruined. So Jesus sends his disciples into the town of Sychar to buy food, and he sits down at Jacob's well. Sychar also had a well, but the water was so hard and unpleasant there, a lot of people would come and use Jacob's well instead. It's very likely that the townswomen would often make that trek for their family's daily water supply. Verse 6 in our text says, Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. In this story, John gives us such clear pictures of both Jesus' deity and his humanity. Jesus was human, and here he is exhausted and thirsty from walking many miles for many hours. But we're about to see how, even when weary, Jesus prioritized doing the will of his Father over anything else. It's something that we can ask as we read through the text. Are we like Jesus in this way? What are our priorities? And how much do we still care about living for God's priorities when we are denied some of the creature comforts that we enjoy? Assuming that John is using the Jewish method of keeping time, which began at sunrise around 6 a.m., the sixth hour is about noon. And that little fact would set a reader up for a surprise when they get to verse 7. Verse 7 just says, a woman of Samaria came to draw water. But this is odd because it's the hottest part of the day, and drawing and hauling water was not an easy task. So it was usually done in the cool of the morning or evening, and often with a group of ladies that could socialize, making that arduous job less tedious. This woman is coming alone in the middle of the day. Now it's the woman's turn to be shocked. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Clearly stunned that he is even addressing her, she says in verse 9, How do you, being a Jew, ask for a drink from me, being a Samaritan woman? And John adds an explanation here for his readers. 
Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. The woman, unnamed throughout the account, clearly knows that Jesus is a Jew, whether it's from how he spoke or what he was dressed like. And we've already established most Jews despise Samaritans. Jewish rabbis often wouldn't even address their own wife and daughter in public, let alone a Samaritan woman. And this expression, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, the other way that could be translated is they don't even use the same utensils. So drinking water from a Samaritan woman's water jar would have been an abomination to most Jewish men. Note, too, that Jesus was tired and he was thirsty, but he never used his miraculous power to benefit himself. Instead, he used his own physical need as an opening to address this woman's spiritual need. Well, Jesus' reply does not actually attempt to address her bewilderment. Instead, it intrigues her more. If you look down at verse 10, Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The end of John 2 talks about how Jesus knew what was in men's hearts. And John's gospel shows this truth again. As Jesus interacts with the Samaritan woman, like he had done with Nicodemus in John 3, his response directed to the conversation to what she needed to hear instead of merely what she wanted to know. Um, pastor and author Kevin DeYoung paraphrased this section like this. Jesus said, if you knew what I could do for you, you would not worry about giving me a glass of water. You'd turn around and ask me for oceans. You don't know what can be given, and you don't know the one who is giving. So Jesus' reply tells her that she would be asking something different if she understood these two things, the gift of God and who she's talking to. There's another famous New Testament verse that actually addresses both both of these things. Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gracious gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The gracious gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus says that if she asked, he would give her living water. In our pastor John MacArthur's commentary on this passage, he wrote, The living water that he offered her was salvation in all its fullness, including forgiveness of sin and the ability and desire to live an obedient life that glorifies God. Back in the book of Jeremiah, Yahweh God had described himself as the fountain of living water. Back then, the term living water could be used for fresh spring water, which looked almost alive as it would bubble up out of the ground. If you've read through the Gospel of John, you know that often John recorded times that Jesus used earthly things to teach a spiritual reality. So he's doing that again, just like he did with the new birth for Nicodemus, and like he's going to do with bread and light. Here, thirsty, standing by an ancient well that was apparently dug by Abraham's grandson, Jesus offered an outcast sinful woman the priceless gift of living water and eternal life. Now, of course, she doesn't understand this yet, so she points out two problems. The well they're standing by is deep, and he has nothing with which to draw water. On a surface level, she's correct. You can actually go to this well today if you don't mind going to the West Bank, and that well is still deep. It gets a little less deep every time somebody drops a rock in to see how deep it is, but it's over 100 feet. So think 10-story building, but going down. So it's a very deep well. And remember that Jesus has sent the disciples half a mile down the road to Sychar 
Normally, when traveling, you'd carry kind of a leather bucket to draw water in your travels, but the disciples probably had that with him, with them. So he had no means to draw this water. So she asks him two questions, although I don't think that she understood how important the answers were at this time. And it's possible there was a little skepticism in her tone. Where do you get that living water, and are you greater than Jacob? He could have said, yes, thanks for asking. As a matter of fact, I am, and gone off. But he didn't. He directed the conversation back to what she needed. If you look at verse 13, Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never, ever thirst, ever. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Since the Samaritans ignored most of the Old Testament, she probably wasn't aware of how Yahweh had spoken of living waters with his people in the past. You looked up some of these verses if you did your lesson this week. In Jeremiah 2, it talks about how Yahweh has cared for his people, but they have forsaken him for worthless, useless things. Jeremiah 2.13, God says, For my people have done two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. They have a God eager to give them an endless provision of everything they need, but they've turned from him to try to carve out their own water storage system that's so broken it can't supply anything. Have you ever found yourself at a place in life where you realize you've been focused on all the wrong things and inside you're still empty? When you realize that you're destitute and you have nothing to offer to God, his invitation to come to him empty-handed is all the more amazing and precious. I love Isaiah 55. Verses 1 and 2 say, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight your soul in riches. That same chapter talks about Gentiles being called to salvation and invites everyone to seek Yahweh while he may be found. Call on him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to Yahweh and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. This is what every sinner, including the Samaritan woman, needs. Jesus knows that this woman has been spending her life on what does not satisfy and that only he can give her what she truly longs for. He contrasted this living water that he offered with the water from Jacob's well, which, though refreshing and far better tasting than their local well in Sychar, could only temporarily slake thirst. She could draw water here day after day, but her need to keep coming back to that well never diminished. Jesus' living water not only quenches thirst for a time, The one who takes the water that he speaks of gets a limitless spring of water that brings endless satisfaction and eternal life. As Jesus said in Matthew 5, 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Where she was seeking satisfaction, what she was attempting to use to satisfy her soul, think about what you use to try to satisfy your soul or to escape from hard realities in your life. Is it working? The Bible describes the pleasures of sin for a season. It doesn't deny that we might enjoy our attempts to find satisfaction apart from God, but that pleasure is fleeting, 
And when it fades, we're just as empty as before and just as unsatisfied. In contrast, David says this in Psalm 16, verse 11. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. And sometimes the things we attempt to try to find satisfaction in are not sinful in and of themselves. For some of us, it might be good gifts of God that we've let take the place of God himself. It could be our roles as diligent employees or wives or moms or grandmas or our service in the church. Even those wonderful blessings must never be our source of satisfaction and ultimate identity because that has to come from Christ alone. Remember that Jesus is the sole source of true satisfaction as well as eternal life. Well, verse 15, the woman said to him, Okay, sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come back here to draw. Do you think a source of limitless water would appeal to a woman who is so shamed by her life that she avoids her neighbors and walks half a mile in the heat of the day to lug a heavy water jar from the well back to her home? Of course it does. Her interest in Jesus' offer of water at this point seems to be at only a practical surface level. Sure, you can make my life easier and possibly skeptical still. Well, if you have heard the gospel faithfully preached, then you know that it is not enough for someone to want the benefits of salvation, like being saved from hell or attaining some sort of earthly blessing. We must repent. We have to recognize and confess our own sin. And so Jesus, the omniscient, all-knowing God, uncovers the sin that she would prefer to hide. Verse 16, he said to her, go call your husband and come back here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have correctly said I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. So he tells her to go get her husband and bring him to the well where they've been talking. She understandably seems to want to shut down this avenue of the conversation and flatly tells him she has no husband. Many commentators tell us what they think her attitude was in this, but we don't really know. Was she irritated? Was she defiant? Was she ashamed? Was she sad? Jesus then brings into the light what she has sought to keep hidden. He acknowledges the true element of her words and exposes what she didn't say. In John 12, 46, Jesus said, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. In revealing the truth of what he knows about her life, he also reveals truth about who he is to her. His supernatural knowledge shows her that this is no ordinary man. She's beginning to recognize just how extraordinary he is. She's had five husbands, and now she's living with a man she's not married to. We can't know what the Bible doesn't tell us about those five marriages. We don't know if those men were kind or abusive, if she left them, if they divorced her, if any of them died. We can be sure, though, that there is a lot of pain in that life history, even if we don't know the details of what happened. And we do know that at the time she meets Jesus, she's living in sexual sin with a man she's not married to. She was on what Proverbs would call the path of folly. Now her sin was exposed, and sin has to be dealt with and turned from in repentance. And we don't see our need for a Savior until we see our sin. Our sin, like that of Nicodemus, 
might be less outwardly obvious than the sin of this Samaritan woman, or maybe not. It really doesn't matter. Nicodemus, you, I, all of us are no less in need of a Savior, regardless of what our external actions are like. Here in John, the devout Jewish Pharisee and the immoral Samaritan woman were both equally lost, both equally headed for hell, both equally and desperately in need of Jesus, his new birth, living water, and eternal life. Well, this woman is understandably shocked that a man she just met for the first time knows such specifics about her life. She comes to the only logical conclusion, and it's almost humorous the way John wrote it so flatly in verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. She doesn't know yet just how right she is. In the next chapter of John, Jesus tells the Jews in John 5, 46, If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. So even with the limited scripture that the Samaritans trusted, her people had evidence of Jesus in those books of Moses. We know that they were anticipating a Messiah based on what she says a few verses later. In addition to John to God's promise in Genesis 3:15, where a Messiah is hinted at, the seed of the woman that would bruise the head of Satan, they also knew in Deuteronomy 18 that God had promised to raise up for them a prophet like Moses from among them. And God said that he would put his words in his mouth and that they must listen to him. Well, the woman then turns the conversation and brings up the subject of worship as well as an ongoing controversy between the Jews and the Samaritans. Verse 20, she says, Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and you people say, like you Jews say, that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Well, rather than devolving into a religious debate, Jesus uses this as an opportunity to address the more essential issue of the true worship of the true God. You probably know that we should pay attention anytime words are repeated in Scripture since they're being emphasized. So notice how many times Jesus mentions worship as we read the next few verses, starting at verse 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So Jesus says, believe me. She has to believe Jesus' words, the truth that he gives. And he explains that the place of worship is not the primary concern. Their Samaritan temple had been destroyed. The Jewish temple is going to be destroyed in a few decades, but that would not disrupt true worship. Even though the Jews had the right temple location and the advantage of being given God's revelation, they and the Samaritans both got it all wrong because they focused on externals. The Samaritans had taken away from Scripture and the Jews had added to it both wrongly, and since neither was worshiping in spirit and truth, neither was actually worshiping God. In verse 23, Jesus gives a description of believers. He calls them true worshipers. Only those who have believed in Jesus Christ alone for salvation can truly worship God. And we find out this glorious truth that the Father is seeking true worshipers. I mean, Romans 3, 10, and 11 tells us no one is righteous and no one seeks after God. But here we find out that in his grace, God is seeking us out. 
The Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world, 1 John 4, 14 tells us. And Luke 19, 10 says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. Well, when Jesus says that true worship is in spirit and truth, he's not talking about the Holy Spirit here, the third person of the Trinity. He's speaking about a person's inner self. Worshiping in spirit is wholehearted worship, not empty actions. God called us to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and he wants us to worship him that way too. And worshiping him in truth means it's consistent with the truth that's been revealed about him in Scripture. This also means that to believe in Jesus Christ for salvation and become a true worshiper, we have to believe the truth found in the Bible, not how we imagine or wish that he would be. Jesus also clearly says that God is spirit. He does not just dwell in certain places like a temple or a church. As Acts 17, 24, and 25 say, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. He is omnipresent everywhere at once. He has always been omnipresent. Even back when his presence was seen in a special way over the tabernacle or the temple, God was still everywhere at once. And our worship is not just limited to one place, like a church. Anywhere we are, we can worship him. So attending a local church, singing praise to the Lord, reading your Bible, those are all good and very important things to do. But these things are not acts of worship if you're just going through the motions. Uh, In contrast, when your heart and your mind are engaged in worshiping the true and living God, you can not only worship God in those ways, but also in whatever you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, as long as you're doing it to the glory of God. We can worship in spirit and truth, ladies, as we work or do laundry or make meals or discipline children or study or whatever tasks God has given us to fill our days. Look down with me at verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. The woman affirms that she knows Messiah is coming and that he'll reveal everything to them, helping them understand everything they need to know. Amazingly, Jesus gives the first and clearest declaration that he is, in fact, this Messiah to this woman who is an outcast among outcasts. If he had proclaimed that to the Jews, they would have wanted to crown him and have him rise up against Rome. But here there's no danger in that, and he says it plainly. He also shows by this that the gospel is not just for the Jews. God is seeking worshipers from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Messiah in Hebrew is the same word as the Greek word Christ. They both mean anointed one. In the Old Testament, you had three anointed roles. You had the prophet, the priest, and the king. And normally, each person was only one of those, but Jesus is the perfect prophet, priest, and king. He is all three, and he's the ultimate mediator between God and man. So Jesus says, I who speak to you am he, and he might be italicized in your Bible because it's there to clarify what Jesus is saying, but that isn't there in the original Greek. So she says, Messiah is going to come and help us understand all these things, and Jesus replies, I who speak to you am. In what Jesus says to her, he not only claims to be the Messiah, he also claims to be God. Exodus 3, when God spoke to Moses from the burning bush and gave his name, he said, I am who I am. The name Yahweh is derived from this. 
from that Hebrew verb, to be. He is the eternally existent, ever-present, one God in three persons. In his gospel, John records 23 times that Jesus used that phrase. Jesus is unmistakably claiming deity, saying that he is the same God who revealed to Moses, I am who I am. He is I am. He created the Samaritan woman. Psalm 139, he knit her together in her mother's womb and numbered her days before she was born. He has searched her and known her. He knew when she would sit or rise, knew her thoughts, knew her words before they crossed her tongue. Jesus knows all about you and me, just like he knew all about her. That would be pretty scary if God wasn't good as well as omniscient. But we can trust him, and we can pray like David did at the end of Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Well, now we come to our second point, which is spiritual food and heavenly harvest, From verses 27 to 45, in God's perfect timing, right after Jesus tells this woman that he's the long-awaited Messiah and God himself, in verse 27, the disciples come back from their trip into town to buy food. Verse 27 says, and at this point, his disciples came when they were marveling that he was speaking with a woman, yet no one said, what do you seek or why are you speaking with her? This is one of those happy, rare times that they restrained their mouths from blurting out what was in their minds. So they're walking back from town with the food they've purchased. The disciples, no doubt, have been able to observe Jesus talking with with a Samaritan and a woman, no less. So we don't know if they're aghast or just amazed, but either way, they don't say anything out loud. So verse 28, the woman leaves her water jar and goes in the city. Um, This just reminds you that this is an eyewitness account of John. He saw all this happen. So she leaves her water jar there at Jacob's well, takes off in the direction that the disciples have just come from, heading up the path toward the village of Sychar, about half a mile away. We don't know for certain why she left her water jar, although theories abound. But it's clear that what she had come there for was no longer the most important thing. She had come to believe now in Jesus, the Messiah, her source of true satisfaction and eternal life, and she was compelled to share this good news with her whole village. She had a new goal. Now she hurried off to tell all those same people that she had been trying to avoid with her midday trip to the well. Her sin and shame no longer kept her from them because something, someone more important had come. She could now rejoice like the psalmist in Psalm 32, 5. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not cover up. I said, I will confess my transgressions to Yahweh, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Or Psalm 40, verse 3, he has put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and will trust in Yahweh. Amazingly, a major part of her testimony is related to the shameful things that she had wanted to keep hidden and the things that had probably led to her being ostracized from her community. She excitedly summons these people in verse 29, exclaiming, Come see a man who told me everything I've ever done. Is this not the Christ? She's not really in a position to come and start preaching at these villagers, but she can come and invite them to see for for themselves who Jesus Christ is. Jesus' omniscience was part of what led her to her understanding that he was the Messiah that they awaited. And even though the Samaritan's religion was a distorted form of Judaism, By God's grace, they still knew of the Christ. 
And their curiosity was piqued enough to motivate the people of Sychar to drop what they were doing and head directly to Jacob's well to see and hear Jesus. So meanwhile, back at the well, we have this scene change in the text. Jesus had more to teach his disciples. When they tried to convince Jesus to eat, in verse 31, he thoroughly confused them when he told them that he had food to eat that they knew nothing about. They are thinking literally. So Jesus had to explain, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Jesus' nourishment and satisfaction came ultimately from doing the Father's will. It's not that food and drink and rest are unimportant. Those things are gifts from God that our bodies were made by God to need. But it is that there's something more important than any of those things. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus both taught us to pray to the Father for our daily bread and showed us that man does not live by bread alone, but by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of Yahweh. As he had to help the Samaritan woman understand the metaphor of living water, he was now having to help the disciples understood this metaphor of Jesus' food being the accomplishment of his Father's will. He was ultimately satiated by doing the Father's will and work, not by physical food. So when you examine your own life, do you think you could say the same thing? Do you find satisfaction and fulfillment by living out your Heavenly Father's will for your life? And if not, what has usurped that place in your life? You probably have Psalm 37 for memorized. In the Legacy Standard Bible translation, it says, Delight yourself in Yahweh, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Lots of people love that verse, but sometimes we're just stuck on getting the desires of our heart, and we forget that first part, that it's when we delight ourselves in him that we have the right desires, and those are the desires that he delights to grant to us. Romans 12 exhorts us, very familiar verses in verses 1 and 2, to present our bodies as a sacrifice, living, holy, and pleasing to God, which is our spiritual service of worship. We're not to be conformed to this world, but we're supposed to be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we may approve what the will of God is, that which is good and pleasing and perfect. So Jesus goes on next to correct the disciples' vision. He's using yet another earthly illustration to help them understand a heavenly truth. Jesus told his disciples in verse 35 to lift up their eyes and look at the fields. It's likely that there were fields with unripe grain between them and Sychar with the harvest months away. And it may be Samaritans typically dressed all in white, that as the Samaritan villagers walked along the road toward them, their bobbing white heads above the grain made it look kind of like a field white unto harvest. But the eternal souls of the people in Sychar were the heavenly harvest that was ready to be reaped. As Jesus said in verse 37, often one person sows and another reaps. Those of us who have come to believe in Jesus Christ for salvation get the joy of bringing others to know the Savior. The one sowing, initially sharing the gospel, often is not the one that gets to reap the harvest, but both of those people, verse 37 says, can rejoice together over that salvation. Paul wrote about this in 1 Corinthians 3, 6 to 8, where he talked about he planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. And he also talks about the reward that all of those involved get. There's an earthly reward. You get the joy of seeing a soul saved. There's a heavenly reward as you're storing up treasures in heaven. And both the sower and the reaper get to rejoice as God gets all the glory. Well, we've read that Jesus told his disciples to look and see that the fields were ripe for harvest, speaking of souls to be saved. So 
think what fields around you are ripe for harvest. So let's ask God to give us eyes to see the people around us like he does. It's really easy to be distracted by our day-to-day lives and the mix of mundane tasks and urgent deadlines. But Paul reminds us in Colossians 3, 2, to not let our mind and perspective be stuck here on earth. Set your mind on things above, not on the things that are here on the earth. What was the heavenly harvest to be had in Samaria? Verse 39, from that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who bore witness. He told me all the things that I have ever done. This woman's witness, this brand new baby Christian who hasn't even had a chance to move out of the immoral situation she's living in, she went and she brought all these people to Jesus. In verse 39, John acknowledged the role of her testimony in their faith. That alone wasn't what saved them, though. Verses 41 and 42, and many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is truly the Savior of the world. So as this community of Samaritans came and heard Jesus' words for themselves, they realized that the woman was right when she suggested this was the Christ, the Messiah. They couldn't get enough. They implored Jesus to stay. So he and the disciples stayed there two more days. And before they left, the Samaritans made that emphatic, important pronouncement. This one is truly the Savior of the world. Jesus came first to the Jews, but this story gives a glimpse of what's to come in salvation history. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, gains eternal life in his name. Well, after staying with the people of Sychar for a couple of days, verse 43 tells us that Jesus and his disciples continued on their way to Galilee. And that's the part of Israel where Jesus grew up. So John puts this strange juxtaposition in the text. He's got verse 44 that says, a prophet has no honor in his own country. And then in verse 45, the Galileans seem to receive him in a welcoming way. And we know these verses aren't a contradiction. So one explanation might be hinted at in the rest. Why are they happy to see him? They've all been in Jerusalem at the feast. They've seen the signs and they want to see more. So this is not a belief from the heart. This is just a superficial desire to see signs, just like we read about at the end of chapter 2. And like Elena said, Jesus did not believe their belief. He knew it wasn't a sincere faith. They wanted to benefit from his miracles. They probably hoped he'd lead a revolt if he was really the Messiah. But that was all they were looking for. So while those in Samaria honored him for who he truly was, Those in his own country only welcomed him on a superficial level. Well, for our last point, John is going to tell us about a man who Jesus moves from this superficial kind of belief to the kind of belief that leads to eternal life. Point three, a dying son and saving faith. And we do find both of those things in this section, but you may have noticed you never actually will find the noun faith in the gospel of John. Instead, over and over, you read the verb believe. John shows us that you must take action. You must believe in Jesus Christ. And in doing so, you will gain eternal life. So verse 46, Jesus is in Galilee. And he arrives back in Cana where he's transformed the water into wine. And word spreads very quickly. The royal official with a very sick child hears about it. We can't say for certain, but it's very likely from the term used for him that he worked for Herod Antipas, the wicked guy that just put John the Baptist in jail. 
Uh, This official lived in Capernaum on the northern end of the Sea of Galilee. And it was the hometown of several of Jesus' disciples. And it's the town where Jesus is eventually going to make the base of his ministry. Well, knowing that his beloved child was dying, the desperate father walked. It's it's about maybe a 16-mile distance, I think, as the crow flies. But he would have walked almost 20 miles, mostly uphill, going southwest to Cana, all in the hopes of persuading Jesus to return to Capernaum with him and save the life of his son. The man implores Jesus to come. It may be that as a royal official, he wasn't used to begging for anything, but he knows his son is running out of time. He might have said goodbye for the last time, and Jesus is his only hope. Jesus' surprising answer to the man's pleas comes in verse 48. So Jesus said to him, "'Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe.'" You people there is plural. So Jesus is apparently rebuking both the man and the surrounding Galileans there. The Samaritans in Sychar had believed in Jesus as Messiah and Savior without any signs at all. They'd simply believed Jesus' word. But most Jews, even with signs and miracles, only believed superficially. Belief that Jesus is able to do signs is not enough to save. People must believe in Jesus himself and in his word. We can't say for certain if this royal official was a Jew or a Gentile, but notice how Jesus uses both his word and a sign to grow this man's initial superficial belief into something more. We know John uses the word believe in different ways in the gospel, so the royal official starts out with a really shallow level of belief. He just believes in this ability to do miracles. He's not walking to Cana to find a savior. He just wants a healer. If you look at verse 50, though, Jesus said to him, remember, he's been begging, come. Jesus said, go, your son lives. And it says there, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started on his way. So his faith is growing. There are false teachers that'll tell you this man's faith healed his son, and that's a lie, because having enough faith is never what heals. God is who heals. The man actually had a very weak faith but it was an all-powerful God, and that was what mattered. So the royal official says to Jesus, come, and Jesus tells him, go. And what does he do? He goes. He, He believed the word Jesus said, and he acted on it. He has to go home. He's got to walk all those miles before seeing any results. He's not getting text updates about the status of his son. Well, he's walking back to Capernaum, and verse 51 says he's met by some of his slaves, and they've left home, and they're coming to find him. And they tell him that his son lives. I was thankful for how the Legacy Bible translated this because it says his slaves met him saying that his son was alive. Some translations say something like his son is recovering, but that's not the point here. The official asks the slaves that met him on the way when his son began to recover. Like, when did he start getting better? Their reply doesn't say he's been getting better since the seventh hour, which should be about 1 p.m., but that the fever left him. So when Jesus healed people, it was instantaneous. He didn't just avoid death and he kind of had a long road to recovery. He was immediately well. Well, when the royal official hears the time that his son got well, verse 53 says, So the father knew that it was at that hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives. And he himself believed in his whole household. The man's son was physically sick, but God used the events of this wonderful story to show the entire household that they were spiritually sick and in need of Jesus Christ, the Savior. Like the Samaritans, they came to believe in Jesus Christ for true satisfaction, 
not just the desired temporary healing from an illness. And by believing in him and his word, they gained eternal life. As the official came to saving faith, he apparently then shared the gospel with his whole household, and they all repented of their sin and believed in Jesus Christ too. I love how in this chapter we keep seeing both salvation and the immediate evangelism of those whose lives God has changed. The woman at the well announces it to her whole town. The official tells his whole household. All of them place saving faith in the Lord. In both accounts, the other people's names are not even given, but they're not the main characters. They're only supporting roles to the one that John is putting on display for his readers. As John uses Jesus' words and his signs to show that he is truly the Christ, the Son of God. John himself said in chapter 20 that there were many other signs that Jesus did that he and the disciples saw firsthand, but the ones he chose to record were there so that readers would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and gain eternal life in his name. I mean, imagine how life-changing these events would have been for that man and his family. They surely remembered it for the rest of their lives. If you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you've been spared from a far worse fate than that boy was in danger of. How does it affect your life now? And if you have not believed in Jesus as your Savior, then you face a far worse death than that boy faced. John 3.36 says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. You must repent of your sin and understanding there's nothing you can do to save yourself. Believe in what Jesus has already done by dying in your place for your sins and rising again from the dead. Trust in him as Savior and Lord, and he will be your sole source of satisfaction and eternal life. Jesus spared the life of this father's son. But about two and a half years later, Jesus, the beloved son of God, would not have his life spared. He would die for the sins of that royal official in his household. But the Samaritan woman and the people of her village, for me, for every one of you that's believed that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. Later, Jesus would commission his disciples to do like he had just done, to take the gospel and be as witnesses in Jerusalem in all Judea and Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. People everywhere needed to know that this one truly is the Savior of the world, and they still do. So if you believe in Jesus Christ, you have to bring others to the Savior. In the very last chapter of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, also written by John, God issues one final invitation, Revelation twenty-two seventeen, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who wishes receive the water of life without cost. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful to you that you have offered us living water, priceless, without any cost to us, but at great cost to yourself. Thank you for the truth that you've given us in your word. And I pray that you would help us to live out our salvation with fear and trembling, as you work in us. And I pray that you would help us to be lights to the rest of the world that needs to know about the Savior that you've sent. In Jesus' name, amen.